Welcome to Scavengers Horde, a Star Wars podcast offering news, analysis and commentary. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. This is episode 140 and it's 23rd of August 2020. Um, and I guess the first thing I want to say is hello everyone. <laughs> uh, we know it's been a while. Um, and I did see some people like have the idea that we weren't actually going to come back and do the podcast again, which was mildly distressing to me. I understand why people thought that, because obviously it was a bit abrupt that we went on hiatus. But yeah, the plan was always to just take a break and then come back like after like a little while had passed. So yeah, I hope people are happy to find that we have indeed come back. Yeah, I was thinking actually the week that we decided to take the hiatus, I was like, oh, we just got like really nice lengthy emails from people like thanking us for continuing to record through the pandemic and everything. And yeah, and then we decided not to. So <laughs> I hope that people didn't think that was in response to those like, oh, yeah, you know what? We are actually going to take a break. Um, yeah, we took a break for a lot of different reasons. Um, and it's done us some good it's been kind of nice to step back um away from the fandom away from star wars in general for a little while and uh engage with other things and focus on other things going on in our lives yeah in the world around us um but yeah it's also good to be back i've missed talking to you about star wars yeah no absolutely as kirsty said it's been really good to have a bit of a break especially well to be honest there really hasn't been that much happening in the world of Star Wars. There have been a few odds and ends in terms of news and stuff, but there hasn't been any new content. And it's like, there's, it's Star Wars, so there's always stuff we could talk about. And you will find that there will be episodes to come where we do talk about stuff that isn't necessarily super current. But yeah, it seemed like a good time to have a break. And as Kirsty said, it was also important to us that we did take that time to step aside and make room for other things and yeah a big part of that was finding time to like read more books listen to more podcasts watch films you know just experience media that's more diverse and encompasses different voices and stuff one of the most heartening things to come out from this whole period has been to see like new voices and new creators come about like and that's through official channels because you have stuff like the Afra audio drama, which is really good, and I'm really excited to talk to Kirsty about it. Um, and also more fan-driven stuff, like Sisters with Sabres, which is a Star Wars podcast run and hosted by women of colour. And yeah, it's a really fun show with great conversations that people should definitely check out if they haven't yet. I have been binging the Bad Romance podcast, which is hosted by Jordane and Bronwyn, and it's just such a fantastic podcast it's basically all about romantic comedies so each episode takes a romantic comedy typically a really bad one (laughs) and like basically talks about it and has a conversation about it and part of why I've been enjoying this podcast so much is that I come to it from the position of someone who when I watched romantic comedies as a teenager especially I really did not like them and I was a bit snobby I suppose about romantic comedies when I was a teenager and almost always had negative opinions so one of the best parts about this podcast has been hearing these women talk about them like and now I can hear their conversation and hear them talk about the story and the characters and everything and it really does make me reevaluate my own perspective 
and think about, okay, why did I actually hate that thing? It sounds really inoffensive, actually. Um, so yeah, it's really good in that way. And it's also really, really funny. Um, my favourite episode is probably about the MTV version of Wuthering Heights, which I what? didn't... I know, right? That was my exact reaction. I had no idea it existed. Wow. So when I saw that that was an episode, I was like, fuck yes, I'm listening to that. <laughs> and it was an absolute riot. Oh my God. I really want to watch it now, basically. So they might be <laughs> selling streaming rights to the MTV version of Wuthering Heights because they put on my radar and I'm very glad they did. Yeah. Check out the Bad Romance podcast. I need to. I follow them both on Twitter and I love them. Um, yeah. But for some reason, I've never listened to it, which is ridiculous because I love romantic comedies, even the bad ones in air quotes. Like I still think there's stuff to enjoy and yeah. and find funny, whether it's intentional or not. Um, and I just saw that they'd done an episode on Long Came Polly and I'd, I love Philip Seymour Hoffman in that movie so much. So nice. I'll be checking that one out. Awesome. Yeah, no, that's a, yet another romantic comedy I have not seen. So I think what I should do at some point is like I should watch one of the films they've watched and then listen to the episode because that's really the right order. Usually I'm watching them talk about films I either haven't seen or have only seen a long time ago. So mm. yeah, it would be nice to come at it with, with a fresher recollection of the film. But yeah, so we are back. Um, and yeah, I guess what I want to say here is that there's plenty of stuff coming up that we're going to talk about. Like, we do still have all your Ray emails, and I promise we will talk about your Ray emails. One of the main things hanging around my neck these few months has been that we've obviously had all these lovely messages about Ray and why that character matters to people, and we do not take that for granted basically people sent us really long really heartfelt messages and we're very grateful for those messages and yeah I'm really excited to put something together about those so that's coming up and yeah there will also be a bunch of other stuff to be announced <laughs> but it is coming I promise because there's stuff we need to catch up with so yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think pretty soon we might be getting a new Mandalorian trailer right yeah, I'd hope so. Like, I'm trying to just not even think about that at the moment. Oh, sorry. Okay. Oh, no, no, don't <laughs> apologise. It's just there were, like, all these rumours in the last week. Oh, we're going to get it on Friday. And, of course, we didn't get it on I Friday. I always just kind of assumed it would get it around the time of celebration, which is, it would have been next week, right? Yeah. So no, that's true. That's kind of what I was thinking, but they might have just shifted things around completely. Who knows? Yeah. I'm sure it will be somewhat soon because I think the series proper will release in like October. Yeah. Or something. So they have to put it out before then. <laughs> in our pre-show chat, we were both saying neither of us are particularly involved in the DC fandom, but yesterday they had the, what did they call it? The fandom? Yeah, the DC fandom. Which, from my impression on Twitter, it's kind of like a, a virtual con. And we were like, why didn't they do that for Star Wars Celebration? Yeah. Wouldn't that have been fun? Yeah, no, it would have been awesome. And really doing it through how everyone is doing these things at the moment, you know, with webcam and stuff, that in theory would give them much more freedom to do some really cool stuff. Like imagine if they did like a reunion of the sequel trilogy actors. Oh my example. God. You know, I would die. Yeah. And that would get a lot of attention. Like die in a happy way, just to be clear. <laughs> <laughs> and really, a lot of fans experience Star Wars Celebration virtually anyway. They have yeah. all the online stuff on YouTube. So they, they could have done that. And most people would have experienced it in a way similar to how they usually do. Yeah, 
exactly and it's a hell of a lot of publicity for what ultimately would not be much money like unless like adam driver would say i'll only do this if you give me a million pounds (laughs) (laughs) he might i'd understand it i wouldn't like begrudge him that because yeah get what you can baby (laughs) it would be cheaper than running an actual in-person convention that's the point i'm saying and it's a missed opportunity but yeah star wars star wars star wars star wars i love you but sometimes the wrong decisions are made or decisions are just not made at all so yeah who knows yeah the way that they engage with the fandom is is interesting to me it seems a a little out of step with how other companies are doing it but maybe they feel like they don't need to because it's star wars well i don't know yeah the dangers of a monolithic ancient fandom where you can't please everyone it's true though it's like the ultimate fandom for that it's just so vast that it's literally impossible to please everyone it's true but i think you could put on a a a smorgasbord kind of you know to cater to a variety of interests i mean because that's really what they do at celebration right they host all of these kind of like more niche panels and topics and that not everyone is going to be interested in and you could just kind of dip into what what does interest you yeah no you're right actually and i think that was like the strength of the dc fandom thing because i'm not a huge dc fan but when i saw the list of like all the projects they've announced and all the films they talked about it covered this huge spectrum you know it Mm. covered like comics it covered animated shows it covered five different live action films all with different tones and types of protagonists and yeah there was huge diversity essentially so there really was something for everyone yeah that's a good model to emulate and hopefully they'll look at the success of it and think oh maybe we should do something because yeah i mean yeah. i guess we are kind of into new territory with social distancing being a thing like yeah people will be kind of doing a bit of trial and error and looking at how other people are, are handling things exactly and i guess to be fair the difference with dc is they actually have a lot of new material to promote at the moment like they've got lots of films that well, like in the middle of filming when the pandemic closed everything down they've got films that were basically ready for release but have had to be put on hold because of the pandemic so they've got lots of stuff to share mm. whereas with star wars it's basically the mandalorian and to be fair like a, a bunch of books and like afro and stuff mm. but in terms of the really really top tier stuff there's not as much i guess i did read somewhere i don't know how true this is but i read that um the new Batman, they've cut that trailer, but they've only actually filmed like a quarter of what they they need to for the movie. Yeah, no, I think that's right. They certainly weren't very far into the filming when they had to close the production down. Mm. I think they had, for the most part, only been doing location work in Scotland. I might be wrong, but yeah, they definitely hadn't done much. And they've certainly set the internet on fire with that trailer. So yeah. good job, guys. I, I hope Robert Pattinson is continuing to enjoy all his junk food in the meantime. <laughs> Yes. That was one of my favourite stories from the pandemic, seeing people absolutely <laughs> flip out at the idea that the Batman actor was eating junk food. The disrespect! <laughs> <laughs> you got to take it seriously! You're a man who dresses as a bat! It's so serious! Um, okay, cool. So let's move on and talk about some of the news that we have missed while we've been away. Um, so yeah for some of these we're going to have more to say than others Um, but these are all things I just basically wanted to make sure we acknowledged at the very least Um, 
And yeah, with this, I've been very selective about what we're talking about because obviously there has been news that's sort of come and gone. So there's been news that was news, but then so much time has gone by since the story came out that it's no longer really news. So I'm trying to talk about stuff that still has implications for the future. So yeah, the first thing we want to talk about is a bit of casting news for the Rogue One spin-off starring Diego Luna. Um, and this is from Deadline. Adria Arjona is set to star opposite Diego Luna in Disney Plus's Star Wars series based on the Cassian Andor character Luna played in the 2016 spin-off film Rogue One. Denise Goff, Genevieve O'Reilly, Stellan Skarsgård and Kyle Soller also are on board. A Disney spokesperson declined to comment. <laughs> of course they did. So, yeah, this isn't a very informative article, basically. And to be honest with this actor, I have seen her in films. Like, I know she was in Pacific Rim 2, um, which I have seen because it had John Baerga. Oh, yeah. Um, but if I'm being completely honest, I cannot remember that character. So I can't really comment on my feelings about her being cast specifically. I feel like the most notable thing to take away from this for me is that it means the show is still happening it's moving ahead they're casting people so that's a good thing so I feel like it had gone quite quiet for a while how about you Kirsty? have you seen good omens I watched the first episode but never really progressed beyond that so is she in that yeah she plays the witch in that she's really great okay Um, awesome so reason to go back and finish it because I did enjoy it I just I've been rubbish with TV. I haven't been able to finish anything. No, that's fair. Um, Yeah, I I really enjoyed that entire series. But yeah, she was good in it too. Um, That's the only thing I remember her from. Apparently she was in True Detective, but I don't remember her role in that. But yeah, what I remember seeing her in, she was good. So Okay, cool. (laughs) That's promising. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it's hard to comment because we don't know anything about the role she'll be playing. They're very secretive. I have actually heard of Rumour. Um, from slash film so it's not like it's from a reddit board or anything is this going to be super spoilery do we need a warning um in my opinion it isn't so i feel like it would be the sort of thing that'd be released in the pre-publicity materials you know so it'd be released in advance of the show okay perhaps skip ahead if you're nervous because i know we thought the same about baby yoda oh my god well we didn't know we didn't know it was baby yoda but we'd heard there was a child yeah exactly (laughs) and we like talked all about this like leak which was dead on apart from it being a yoda baby basically (laughs) um and and inadvertently spoiled the huge surprise at the end of episode one but oops sorry so that's the warning basically so please skip ahead by a few minutes if you do not want to hear something that may be true the rumor i heard is that she's his sister oh okay yeah that's cool which would be interesting um the only thing that makes me go like oh god is that i seem to recall in rogue one there being a line from cassian something to the effect of i've lost everything in this war so I really hope they don't fridge her without actually giving her like a substantial and interesting role beforehand. Hmm. I, I really want them to build her up in a big way. Like, don't just kill her for dramatic effect, please. You know? <laughs> yeah. I guess they could have been separated. Yeah. But That's possible. Yeah. Now, now that you say that, I'm like, oh, that does sound like something Star Wars would do. <laughs> 
Star Wars really doesn't have a good track record of female relatives, unfortunately. I would just love to see more sibling relationships in Star Wars. You know, I love Luke and Leia's relationship, incest aside. Um, I love the Rose and Paige thing, even though obviously we don't see them interact directly, aside from in the books. Um, yeah. But I love the way that's used. Um, so I- I'd like to see more of that. Yeah. No, exactly. So I think there's real potential. Again, it's very hard to comment on like how we feel about that as we don't know what sort of sibling relationship it would be. But yeah, there's definitely territory that Star Wars has found fertile ground in before. So yeah, like it could be really interesting and I hope they'd use her in a good way because mm. yeah, she seems to be like a talented actress. Yeah. It'd be interesting because he does ha- he has that line too where he's like I've been in this fight since I was six years old. So yeah. it was like, well, was she in the fight too? Or yeah. did they like separate as kids and then came back together? Or hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, like it was a whole family fighting like against the Empire. Like what's going on? Because he's, I think he's from a separatist planet. Yes, so, that's right. Yeah. yeah, he must have been dragged into things from an early age and that kind of shaped his life. But it'd be interesting to see what that meant for his family. Yeah, I'd expect to see plentiful flashbacks in the context of a Cassian Andor series, which has the potential to be really interesting because it would go into stuff like around Revenge of the Sith time, Mm -hmm. which is an interesting period in the history of Star Wars, essentially, so everything's going to shit. (laughs) When are things not going to shit in Star Wars? Exactly. You know what I mean? (laughs) Even when things appear peaceful, there's always something actually going on in the background. Yeah. Exactly, there's some like evil wizard like cackling and crooking his fingers. <laughs> Palpatine shilling on Exegol for several decades. <laughs> I want to see that Disney Plus show. <laughs> what was he doing? Yes, exactly. I want to see like where the fuck all those acolytes came from in The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> Making endless snow clones. They could do like a literal like soap opera, like Coronation Street style, purely about the inhabitants of Exegol during that like thirty year period, like all the like loves and strifes and like arguments and fallouts. <laughs> well, yeah, because they had to create that entire army, so yep, exactly. they were pretty busy. Yeah, they're busy having large families, giving their children over to brainwashing programs. Great storytelling stuff. It's, yeah. Okay. Um, could you read the next story, please, Kirsty? Yeah, um, the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special is to premiere on Disney+. Plus. It's the most wonderful time of the year on Kashyyyk! And Lego Star Wars fans are invited to journey back to Chewbacca's homeworld for a Wookiee-sized celebration of the galaxy's most cheerful and magical holiday, Life Day! <laughs> this November, the Lego Star Wars Holiday Special, which premieres on Life Day, November 17th, 2020, on Disney+, Plus, will reunite Rey, Finn, Poe, Chewie, Rose, and all your favourite droids from R2-D2 to BB-8 for a joyous feast on Life Day, the holiday first introduced in 1978's Star Wars Holiday Special. The new LEGO special is the first to debut on the streaming platform and will continue the rich, long-time collaboration between Lucasfilm and the LEGO group, playful adventures told in an endearingly irreverent way. Set after the events of Star Wars The Rise of Skywalker, Rey leaves her friends to prepare for Life Day as she embarks on a new adventure with BB-8 to gain a deeper knowledge of the Force. At a mysterious Jedi temple, Rey finds herself hurled into a cross-timeline adventure through beloved moments in Star Wars cinematic history, coming into contact with Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, Yoda, Obi-Wan Kenobi, and other iconic heroes and villains from all nine Skywalker saga films. 
But will she make it back in time for the Life Day Feast and learn the true meaning of holiday spirit? You'll have to watch to find out. I love Star Wars. It's so stupid. <laughs> Sorry. Oh my god. Sorry. Like I know that's a bad way to come off that very well read um, and press release, Kirsty. Well done. Um, but yeah, like I, I have complicated feelings about this, which in itself I find really funny because I have complicated feelings about a Lego TV special. <laughs> Every piece of Star Wars news since the Rise of Skywalker like spins us into this existential crisis. <laughs> so, it's like, look at the little. But what does figures. this mean? <laughs> Where's yeah. Ben? Is it canon? How is Ray doing without the other half of her dyad? <laughs> Little Lego Ray, missing half of her soul. Is she okay? Am I going to look into that like crude painted face and just see like unbelievable pain and suffering <laughs> hiding beneath that plastic smile? I'm fine. It's fine. I will probably watch this. Oh, like, of course, we're gonna yeah, watch it. For sure. we're, yeah, we're we're gonna watch this. Let's be honest. Um. It's also quite fascinating to me that this is post-Tross. Like, and obviously, I don't think the Lego stuff is canon. Like, is it canon? Can you <laughs> no, remember? Well, I don't know. I mean, what does that even mean? <laughs> Who cares? None of it's real. When the official history of Ray and her friends is written when it mentioned the Life Day adventure. <laughs> That's what I mean. No, I'm just being ridiculous now. Rose better have a starring role in this. That's all I've got to say. Yeah. No, exactly. Why can't it be like Ray and Rose, like going on this journey through time? Like, screw Luke. There's like an interview with one of the people working on this out there, but they're like, the relationship between Ray and Luke is at the heart of this special. And it's like, fuck that. Well, okay. So, yeah, that's the one I read, and I was like, oh, I was kind of excited about this. And then I read that, and I was just like, really? So, mm. I think the premise, right, is that she goes back in time, so she meets like Luke in the age of the original trilogy. Yeah. So maybe know, maybe she meets him and thinks he's a bit of an ass. I don't know. But I, I don't know how they're going to interact. And I I don't, I mean, I don't know. <laughs> it's Lego, so whatever. But I was just like, really? That's the thing you're going to focus on? More Luke? Yeah. I, I know, know people love Luke. Sorry. I, I, and I like Luke too. He's just not my favourite. Yeah. Luke is just fine. <laughs> That's my favourite. I'd, I'd about much Luke. rather see more Finn than more luke you know like yeah we've got a lot of luke yeah no exactly i think the reason that sort of stung a little when i read that interview again putting this all into perspective it's just a lego thing it doesn't matter it's all silly um <laughs> like the thing that stung was just that i think with the rise of skywalker one of the most disappointing aspects of that was they didn't trust the new characters essentially to hold the attention of the viewer and to make the story feel important in its own right as their story, the story of these new characters. And I think I just always will feel a bit disappointed when there's a story about Ray or Finn or Poe or Rose, for example, where ultimately it all hinges on some connection to an original trilogy thing. I think that's always going to be a bit disappointing to me. So, yeah, that's the place I'm coming from when yeah. I feel a bit disheartened, essentially. I mean, they say that they're going to connect all of the movies for this. Like, supposedly, she's going to go back to, like, prequel era stuff, too. I, I assume when they mention Yoda and Obi-Wan Kenobi, I could be wrong, but maybe that's prequel era versions of those characters yeah. that she interacts with. 
Yeah, there is like a little photo in the article where there's like a bevy of like timeline inappropriate characters interacting with each other all in the same space. <laughs> there's like a red Palpatine trooper, for example, like with Mace Windu and Obi-Wan and stuff. Um, so yeah, I feel like maybe just like everyone like inhabits the same space for some reason. Okay. <laughs> I don't understand Lego. It's like a very I foreign mean, I'd love to see Ray meet Padme, for example. Yeah. yeah. That would be awesome. And I'll tell you what, Kirsty, what I am taking heart from in relation to this is that I know they're saying that the heart of this is about Ray and her relationship with Luke, but do you know what else they said that about? TLJ? Yes. <laughs> yeah, but that had to be surrounded. And you know, that was technically true. I mean, yeah. you know, they did share a lot of screen time, but it wasn't it wasn't the whole truth. But yeah, I somehow doubt they're being as secretive about the Lego Star Wars holiday special. Because they, didn't they also mention that Kylo would be like with Palpatine and Vader, like all the villains chilling together? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I'm basically trying to set my expectations low. And yeah. fr- from what they've been saying, I, I'm not going to expect like any Ben Solo content. I know, I'm, that's a bit depressing, isn't it? Like, yeah. <laughs> just okay again with the caveat that this is lego so i know we sound like crazy people because we're reading way <laughs> too much into it but i and, and it'll be funny because lego star wars is about being funny but i'm like do i want to see kylo with palpatine <laughs> like the guy who tormented him his entire life and <laughs> yeah like can you put ben with even ben with luke or or you can do or his mum because the yeah, or, or Ben and Finn, or Ben and Poe, like, for some comedy. Like, because this is about putting characters together who wouldn't necessarily be together. So why does he have to be with Palpatine? Yeah. And if he's with Vader, that's something that could potentially be interesting, because you could have those two finally interacting. But will it be Vader being, like, evil Vader, or will it be Ben and Anakin finally connecting? Mm. You know? So yeah, yeah. We'll see. No, exactly. Time will tell. And one thing I will say in their favour is that historically, the Lego Star Wars annuals have done a very good job with Kylo. There have been several jokes all about him like being deeply in love with Rey. Oh, and I love the, the TFA video game as well. That's yes. really good. Um, and That's I think great. we're still getting one that like encompasses the whole saga as well. Yeah. So I don't think they did, they didn't do one for like The Last Jedi, but they're saving it for all nine films together. exactly yeah they've got a lego game coming out called the skywalker saga which will encompass all nine films so yeah that'll be very interesting i'm looking forward to some quality content there so you (laughs) can't beat the force awakens lego game where it's like more more (laughs) when we did our episode on the 78 holiday special didn't we have like a section where we talked about the potential for a sequel trilogy version i think we said we'd have like the the caretakers on up two and stuff Yes, I think we did. Yeah, yeah, no, you're right. Yeah. Like, uh, and now we do truly get a sequel trilogy era holiday special. So I I am looking forward to this. I think it will be fun and it will also be fun to talk about. And, like, if it is really infuriating with, like, Rook, you know, that most evil of all things, Rook, I'm not going to explain that for people. (laughs) I'm not going to explain it or go into it any further. Rook, stand here. You're a demon, Kirsty. If you if you want your fit racks, DM me. So. <laughs> oh my god. So if there is that, or even the implication of Rook, 
then we can always just rewrite it on our podcast, which is. I'm just gonna say that Luke likes cute brunettes. Okay. (sighs) (laughs) He's also a bit dumb. It wouldn't surprise me if he sees Ray and he like thinks she's Leia or something or whatever. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh no. Young Luke, he's he's pretty great, isn't he? He <laughs> is. Yeah, bless him. He's a little baby. Himbo. Okay. Yes. All the Skywalkers are himbo, so am I? <laughs> Super himbos. Who am I kidding? Okay. Anyway. So, right. The next thing that we're going to talk about is that the next Star Wars films have been pushed back by a year. <laughs> if, maybe even more. Come on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no, like, who knows at this point? Let's see when this the plague goes away. <laughs> so, galaxies far, far away are moving back even further now. This is from Vanity Fair, by the way. I like how they write. Disney has announced that all of its upcoming Star Wars and Avatar films have been delayed a full year due to upheaval in the release and production schedule from the COVID-19 pandemic, amounting to postponements that will ripple through 2028. Which, just to say, doesn't sound like a year that should exist. It sounds like a year from a science fiction novel. (laughs) Um, It's not clear which stories in the Star Wars universe were on the company's internal schedule for the years ahead, but The Last Jedi director, Ryan Johnson, had planned his own trilogy that was still in the works, and Jojo Rabbit Oscar winner Taika Waititi is writing a separate project with 2017 screenwriter Christy Wilson-Carnes. Three untitled Star Wars films are now being pushed back a full year each and will now come out in December of 2023, 2025, and 2027. I mean, I've got to say, it's quite funny to get announcements for pushback of movies that we don't even know what they are. Oh yeah, it's so funny. what they're called. It's like, okay, these hypothetical films. <laughs> it's very, very arbitrary. Highly arbitrary. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure, obviously, this has huge implications for Lucasfilm as a company, but like, it, for, in terms of like fans reading this stuff, it's like, okay, well, we get the films when we get them, don't we? we I mean, I know I, I'm not going to the cinema anytime soon, just speaking personally. Sure. Yeah. So I know everyone has their own way of dealing with what's going on, and depending on who you're in your quarantine bubble with, and you know, whether you're an essential worker and you're already out there, and... Everything is a bit of a mess right now, so I am yeah. not surprised at all to see that this is going to have a huge impact on companies' production schedules. Yeah, no, exactly. It's perhaps the most unsurprising thing that we've spoken about so far, to be honest. I would have been far more shocked if everything was still chugging along as normal. Yeah, I mean, really, they were very lucky to have just finished the second season of Mandalorian when it all happened, right? Yeah, so extremely. That they can put out. Yeah. No, because I think that's a real problem for Disney Plus at the moment, to be honest, because obviously they're meant to have all these Marvel TV shows that are going to premiere on there, but Mm. that's impossible because none of them actually finished filming um, before the pandemic happened. Um, And yeah, Mandalorian is basically going to be their main flagship TV release for the latter half of the year because of that. Yeah. yeah it's really good and i think it's also a testament to the efficiency of the processes used for that show um because obviously it's all basically done on a massive green screen but a far more sophisticated version of that um and yeah i definitely look forward to that so we will have stuff we're not going to have a total drought until 2023 but 
yeah, I, I will be really hungry, I think, by that point for a new Star Wars film, because for me, like, top tier Star Wars will always be the movies, I think. Like, I can enjoy the TV stuff and the books and audio dramas and stuff, but it's just nowhere near on the same level of immersion as the films are. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I'm kind of on the same same wavelength. Um, I mean, yeah, because it just sounds like more of a break because it were already kind of taking a couple of years, right? And as yeah. we said, we, we don't we don't even have official announcements on what they are beyond like who are the people involved. Like we haven't heard anything about Ryan's trilogy being cancelled, but we also haven't heard anything else beyond like whenever he's occasionally interviewed for something. He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm still talking to Lucasfilm, but it's very vague. Yes. So, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm obviously still hoping for that, but we don't have anything to hold on to. Yeah, exactly. My my only hope at this point is that, well, people have had a lot of time and they've just had to sit indoors. I hope all the screenwriters working on their Star Wars projects have made a lot of progress in this time, because <laughs> there's no excuse. <laughs> no, to, to be fair, obviously everyone's individual circumstances, people will have children, responsibilities, etc, etc. So I'm being facetious, but yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, you never know. This could have opened up opportunities for people to be creative and collaborate in ways they they didn't before. So we'll just kind of see what comes out of it. But obviously the priority is for everyone to stay safe in the meantime. So, 100%. Um, okay, cool. And then finally, there's an interview with Kathleen Kennedy in the rap that has just been released in time for the podcast. Yippee! Um, <laughs> Yippee! <laughs> I didn't even realise that was Anakin until after I did it. And I was like, I've just absorbed Star Wars. Yeah, you're just channeling him. This yeah. is... <laughs> He's part of my soul, Kirsten. He's part of my soul. Um, but yeah, could you read out the part of the interview I've highlighted, please? Mm-hmm. At the end of last year, when The Rise of Skywalker came out, you said you wanted to take time out to think about where the franchise is going from there. Are you still doing that? Oh yeah, it's an ever-evolving process. You know, when I personally came into this, George had already been having conversations with his previous actors, Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford and Mark Hamill. There was a saga that the fans loved and he never finished. He always talked about doing nine movies, and he was ready to complete that. And so our focus had been from the beginning on finishing that saga. And now we're stepping back stories have been told within this universe over the last 40 odd years and there's now the realization that this is a mythology that actually spans about 25,000 years when you really start to look at all the different stories that have been told whether it's in books and games we just need the time to step back and really absorb what george has created and then start to think about where things might go that's what we've been doing and we've been having a great deal of fun doing it and meeting with lots of different filmmakers and talent there's so many fans out there and so many filmmakers that have been influenced by Star Wars for so long that it's a fantastic opportunity to get a sense of who wants to be a part of this. So that's what we've been doing. Yeah, now these are interesting comments. They're obviously not markedly different from things we've heard Kathleen Kennedy say before, because for a while they've been speaking about having a bit of a break and taking time to regroup, essentially. Um, but yeah, I, I think for both of us, Kirsty, we were saying that the main thing that sticks out to us is a potential undercurrent of knowledge that maybe after the rise of Skywalker, they realized they really had to have a long, hard think about where they were going to go next, which as far as I'm, I'm concerned is only a good thing. They should take all the time they need to get it right because yeah, I, I don't want another screw up like rise of Skywalker style, please. 
Well, yeah, I mean, I think it's it would be natural for them to do that even if they felt that had performed well and had yeah. been critically received well. I mean, we're kind of reading into her words, right? That's what we're doing because we don't know her and we're coming from the perspective of, you know, neither of us loved that movie. So inevitably that's going to kind of colour our reading and what she's saying. Um, but I don't know. I mean, I think we said before... I do think that Lucasfilm kind of needs to figure out what they're doing with Star Wars in general and what they're trying to do with these stories because I know not everyone agrees, but I really do think there's a bit of a disconnect between The Last Jedi and The Rise of Skywalker in terms of who these stories should be for and what the overall themes and messaging should be that they're exploring. Yeah. Um so it's natural for them to be kind of having those conversations because mm. I, I I do sympathise with them because they have this huge fan base that's very diverse and it must be hard to be trying to attract new fans and also try to maybe cater to this older fan base yeah. that you know there's this perception I don't know how real it is because I'm kind of immersed in online fandom but there is this perception that those older fans um, are more homogenous in terms of, you know, that's their stereotype of the older um, straight white man who collects a lot of Star Wars figures and spends a lot of money. And I think that's kind of the critical thing, right? It's, yeah. Maybe that's where the money is. I, I don't know. Mm. But um, when I saw The Rise of Skywalker, that's just kind of what leapt out at me in terms of like, the minimization of Rose's role and kind of the elevating of certain things in the story and the dismissal of other things and kind of what they chose to do with Ray. I, I think that's something that they kind of need to figure out. Yeah. And I'm sure not everyone in the in the whole of Lucasfilm is going to re- read things the same way. You know, there's going to be some inner debate about that, presumably. Of course, yeah. And I'm sure there are people within Lucasfilm who are very happy with the rise of Skywalker and feel it was successful, like in a creative way. And obviously it was successful financially. It made over a billion dollars. So it's not like anyone's like crying into their dinner or anything. But yeah, I think over these last few months, I've obviously been absorbing a lot of non-Star Wars things. But I have also like reflected a bit more on Rise of Skywalker and the sequel trilogy overall. And I feel like one of the biggest problems with the Rise of Skywalker is ultimately it's about Star Wars itself. Like, the the ambition of The Rise of Skywalker is to comment purely on the legend that is contained within Star Wars, and more specifically within the original trilogy films. Like, that's the whole purpose of Rey going back to Tatooine at the end. And I feel like there has to be a shelf life on that, essentially. Like, I obviously don't like that they did it at all, but I know some people did like that ending, so I don't want to begrudge those people that ending. But you can only possibly do that once, you know, and for future, they need to figure out what is the meaning we want to imbue these stories with, like, what is the theme, like, what do we want people to take away from this at the end of the day? They need to have a really strong and powerful vision of that, I think, if they're to make stories that matter. And I think everyone at Lucasfilm will be very, very aware and conscious that the films really need to matter because they can't just be these disposable popcorn flicks. Of course, they're going to be silly and childish to an extent because it's Star Wars and that's part of the fun. 
but there has to be something embedded deeper than that like i'm rambling a bit but hopefully that makes sense yeah no i i i totally agree and i think this is a conversation a lot of fans are having and it sounds like that's what lucasfilm are doing too it's like what actually should matter in terms of star wars and not something that's different from the endless references to star wars that already exists and having people who are related to each other and just i don't know you have to move beyond that i have a bad feeling about this right it's like okay you can have that line in every movie as kind of a bit of a joke but you can't have the entire movie beholden to what's come before um or you do and you just kind of you're stuck in that loop which i i think they're in danger of doing unfortunately i don't really know how star wars moves forward yeah and i think like what we're getting from this interview basically is that they are in the same position but hopefully with more of a sense of where they are going to go forward like or at least that's hopefully what they've got a team of talented creative people together to work on because i I think the potential is boundless really for what they could do with star wars and the kinds of stories they could tell like something that i would love to see from a future star wars film series is make a film about mothers you know, in like the maternal influence in people's lives, you know, and how those relationships affect people and shape people. Because obviously in the original trilogy, it's like the ultimate daddy issues, like story, essentially, you know, and I'd love to see like more emphasis given to that other side of the coin, kind of, that's always been a bit overlooked in Star Wars. Yeah, they definitely need to centre different kinds of relationships definitely need to center more female friendships friendships between female characters yep um yeah just tell different kinds of stories with different kinds of characters and um i i do think the reaction to the the last jedi kind of shook them a little bit and it's a shame because that film was really well received critically and it made a lot of money yeah but i think there's this perception as i said that there's this like core fan base who is just incredibly angry at the idea of anything new being done to their star wars Mm. and i i'd hate to see lucasfilm kind of beholden to that and stifled because of it yeah what i really hope is that having stuff like the mandalorian ultimately that's going to free them from that to some extent because by diversifying the content they're offering and providing something like the mandalorian which anecdotally i don't know their viewing figures or the demographics of the people that are watching it but anecdotally a lot of the original trilogy fans i encounter seem to really like that show and it seems to be really reaching that older more long long term fan base that they've had since mm. the seventies. Like even my dad, who pays no attention to pop culture, he said, Oh, oh I hear they've made a show about the young Yoda. And <laughs> it's like mm, um Kind of. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Kind of dad. Um but yeah, it's like reaching people like my dad, you know, who watched Star Wars in nineteen seventy seven in the theatre. And I think that if they can really center stuff like The Mandalorian as this is for you and then have like new film series that, yes, people who have loved the film since the beginning, they're very welcome and there will be stuff for them to enjoy in the stories, but they're not for them and they're not about placating them, you know? Mm. Like, I think that would be a good path and yeah. I think The Mandalorian might unlock that. So we'll see. Yeah. 
I mean, this is less about Star Wars specifically and more, I guess, again, I'm coming kind of back to what happened yesterday with that DC stuff Mm. and kind of the whole thing with Zack Snyder and um, his version of Justice League. I'm getting pretty concerned about this influence that the monetization of like hate and harassment campaigns around certain properties how that's going to actually shape these things going forward yeah no it is worrying like even the fact that the snyder cut is happening as a real thing that will be released for public consumption that does kind of terrify me a bit like purely because of the toxicity of the movement that ultimately resulted in that coming about essentially you know that troubles me I'm not super well versed on the ins and outs of how all that happened. Like I know there was this long running campaign for that to happen, but then is it happening just because of that, or was it something that they always kind of intended anyway? Or I, I just I'm a little bit worried about it because it does kind of validate that behaviour and it yeah. emboldens those people who base their entire identities online around this kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and of course, it's not just related to DC. It's like any of these big properties. There are people who make money off of talking about it on their YouTube channels, and 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 there's so much hate around it. Like it's just it concerns me because I, when I was watching the Rise of Skywalker and I saw what they'd done to Rose, I was like, oh, this is this is kind of similar to that in that you maybe didn't intend to validate um, that that kind of behavior and the treatment of Rose and Kelly Marie Tran, but the outcome's the same. Exactly. It's absolutely the end result, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I really hope they can avoid that pitfall. Like, I don't think that sort of behaviour should be rewarded, but ultimately that's more of like a long-term game type of thing. So we'll just have to see how that pans out. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see Star Wars reduced to them. Um, okay, then there's just one final part of the interview. Could you read out the final bit I've highlighted, Kirsty? Mm-hmm. There are a record number of women directors nominated for Emmys this year, and three of your eight episodes were directed by women. Is that a priority for you? It's absolutely a priority. It's been very exciting to see the talent that's come in. And we're now developing the limited Obi-Wan Kenobi series with Deborah Chow, and she's just been doing a phenomenal job. I was actually sad because I love Nia DaCosta, who was just announced to do Captain Marvel, the sequel, She's another director I've been watching, and I think she's enormously talented. Certainly the kind of television that's being made now is going to give many people an opportunity to to write more and be more involved with shows that have special effects and extended production values. It really gives people an opportunity to move into big technical movies. That's exciting. I think we can develop a lot of new talent, and it's about time. Oh, was she saying that she's sad because she wanted Nia to do something for Star Wars? That's the impression I get. Yeah. <laughs> okay. This phrased a bit awkwardly because, like, well, isn't that good news? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, oh, how dare this woman be successful? Yeah. <laughs> it does sound bad like that. Yeah. That would no. have been cool. Yeah. Nia had done Star Wars. Yeah. No, like, um, Nia DaCosta, she's um, done the new Candyman movie, which yeah. hasn't come out yet, but the trailers and the promotional footage they've put out for it look awesome. So, I'm very, very excited for that film. And yeah, the talent is just obvious basically so i understand why kathleen kennedy is kicking herself a bit um but yeah like i am really glad that she's saying this unabashedly like i don't think it's especially surprising she said that she's very keen to develop female talent before but i like this continued 
openness about it because I, I hate to say it but there are some people who find these sorts of remarks controversial and like wrong which yeah I mean, you just have to roll your eyes I think yeah I mean it kind of comes back to what we were saying before right like do you move forward or do you cater to that kind of fan yeah exactly it's like I made the mistake of looking at a reddit thread where this interview was being discussed and people of course latched onto this bit and the responses were what you'd expect you know to the effect of um i don't care who directs my stars films as long as they're qualified they could be <laughs> purple for all i care and it's like people aren't purple it's like well you say that but in practice i sense this other undercurrent behind what you're saying so there's always the subtle implication that people who aren't white men are not qualified that's the thing when they say like i don't care who does it as long as they do a good job it's like well people of color and women will do good jobs yeah and if you think otherwise you're basically saying that the only people qualified will be white men and that is just not true yeah exactly so like it's a very tiresome response to see (laughs) like sometimes i think that as a society we've progressed but then i'll see that and be like okay maybe not as much as i thought (laughs) um every time there's progress there's people who are really 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 not happy about it and we'll let you know it's true yeah so at least it shows that there is progress happening um but yeah like i really hope that with in terms of female directors and female showrunners and like creative leads i really hope that deborah chow is just the beginning to be honest because yeah, there's so many incredibly talented female filmmakers and creatives out there. Like so we were discussing, weren't we, Kirsty, that Rain Roberts, who's in the story group, she's like apparently done her first short film, mm-hmm. like, and she directed that, right? Like, yeah, I think so. Yeah, which is amazing, and yeah, I'd love to see that if she like can like get more experience under her belt, more short, more short films, maybe like an episode of The Mandalorian. I'd love to see Rain Roberts direct a trilogy. You know, I want to see her story because she clearly has great storytelling sensibilities from when we've seen her interviewed before. So yeah, I trust her instincts, basically. Yeah, and if they can kind of foster and encourage the talent of in-house people like Dave Filoni and kind of get him into live action, there's no reason they can't do that with other people. So Exactly yeah so it's good to see that whole initiative being taken seriously and actual real human people being recruited to these shows when historically they would not have been so yeah it's all moving in the right direction Mm -hmm. yeah i think deborah chow's episodes the mandalorian were really well received by the fandom in general so everyone seems to be looking forward to the obi-wan kenobi series and i've seen some people comment on the fact that she says it's limited um I, I kind of assumed that that would be the case. Yeah. That it would be kind of like a finite story rather than just kind of letting something go on as long as it does. And I I think that's the right choice. Yeah. I, I feel like there's going to be limited story material in that whole premise of Obi-Wan in the desert. <laughs> you know, like, and I feel like it could easily become very padded and very tedious if they were to just let it run and run. And I also just don't think Ewan McGregor would do it. I think he's got better things to do. <laughs> sorry that sounds really bitchy like i promise i love stars but... <laughs> you know what i mean he's a movie star guys okay he's a movie star <laughs> oh my god okay um 
yeah so that brings us to the end of the news that we have at the moment um and what we're going to do now is we're going to segue into a segment that we actually recorded before our break um hopefully you shouldn't notice any huge difference in terms of the way in which we speak or like any references that will date it too much because it's a discussion about the empire strikes back novelization um yeah we had fun with that didn't we kirsty yeah, I, th- I think maybe I enjoyed it a bit more than you did, but uh, we had a good discussion about it. And yeah, it's the second part of our series on the novelization. So next up will be Return of the Jedi. So I, I don't know if anyone's reading along with us or kind of just listening to our thoughts and maybe we'll persuade someone to go and read one of them. Who knows? Yeah, exactly. At the very least, hopefully when we get to the Revenge of the Sith novel, we'll persuade people to read that who haven't oh, already yeah. because... It goes without saying that that is worth reading, guys. So promise it is. Just go and read it now. Don't wait for us. Just go and read it. Um, but yeah, I hope you enjoy this discussion. And we'll be back with a fresh episode, 100% fresh, in the next few weeks. So yeah, thanks, everyone. So let's move in to the main topic, which is the novelization of The Empire Strikes Back. Um, could you briefly remind our listeners what we're doing with the novelizations, Kirsty? So this is part of like a wider project. Yeah, basically we decided after the sequel trilogy finished that we would go back and read all of the film novelizations from the very beginning. Um, so that's what we're doing. And we're on Empire now. We did A New Hope first. Um, and this one is by Donald F. Glut or Glut. Not sure mm-hmm. how you pronounce it. Um, and it came out in 1980. And... Yeah, it was kind of, actually, I wanted to mention last time when we were discussing the A New Hope one, we were talking about how, oh, we'd love to see th- and compare if they brought out novelizations today and if they would read very differently. And our listener, Jedi Geek Girl, helpfully reminded us that there are newer novelizations. <laughs> and we did know this, so it was clearly yep. us just having a collective brain fart. Um, there's those ones that are, what are they called? Like the Princess, the Scoundrel. And the smuggler, so, yeah. Oh, oh, no, the farm boy, the princess, and the smuggler. Okay, or something like so that. it's yeah. Is it Alexandra Bracken who wrote that? So we haven't read them, but I I do intend to at some point. Yeah, I think that one might be a nice thing to do, like when we get up to around the Force Awakens point in this project, because that's mm. when they were released, and that's sort of the context that they came out in. It was like we're going to re-familiarize you with these stories in written form. So yeah, I'd be really interested to see how differently they're done now because these original novelizations, you know they were written in the 1970s slash 1980s. You can tell very, very easily indeed. Mm. Yeah. So thank you for reminding us of those. As soon as we saw that, I was like, oh, of course. <laughs> that was a stupid thing for us to say. Um, but yeah. So they're not the exact same. I'm sure they're, they made a point of updating things and altering things slightly but it's still kind of interesting for us to go back to the beginning and read how things were originally envisioned obviously there's been a lot of of changes over the years what were your first impressions of this novelization <sighs> hate to say i was a bit disappointed um, oh okay like and it wasn't terrible it, i think it's just because empire strikes back is such a fantastic movie and it's easily one of my favourite Star Wars movies and one of the best Star Wars movies. And that's obviously not a controversial opinion. And 
I don't know, I guess that just built me up too much to expect something really compelling from the novelization. And that's just not what these books are, you know. That's mm. not the nature of how they were envisaged and the authors were welcome with lots of restrictions. So I understand why they are like they are. I don't know, I think I just enjoyed the one for the original stars a lot more. And I feel like Alan Dean Foster, he had a lot more eccentricity of style, I suppose, that I really appreciated. And this one, it just felt a lot, a lot more bland to me. Hmm. How about you, Kirsty? I'm kind of mixed. Like, I totally get what you're saying. I think reading these old novelizations has kind of reaffirmed to me that the purpose of novelizations has changed a lot over time. And we talked about this before, because the newer ones, it's like you, you read it for something new because you can watch the movie any old time yeah um so reading this it's like it is pretty much just the movie but like adapted from a script into a novel um there's not too much added there that's that's different or bringing greater depth to the characters um i'm kind of mixed on the comparing it to alan dean foster's original novelization because I get what you mean that it doesn't have like that spark of original style that was kind of appealing, but mm. at the same time, he's not. Donald is not so uh, sexist. <laughs> yes. So I didn't miss all of the creepy descriptions of Leia <laughs> or Cammy or you know. So that that was kind of a that was a nice surprise. But yeah, it's much better in that respect. I agree. Yeah, and there are little bits that I liked that were slightly different and added a little note, um, especially around Han and Leia's interactions. And then little things that were just tweaked, obviously, because lines were improvised or he was clearly working from concept art of a character that then looked quite different in the finished movie. So the descriptions are off. So we'll we'll go into those. But it's pretty much what it says on the tin. So it, it is just the movie in written form. And... Yep. Uh, something something is lost when they do that I think you'd have to be a really really skilled writer to make it as exciting as the movie um, so as I was reading it I was like yeah I'm enjoying this because I enjoy the movie but I could just be watching the movie <laughs> so. yeah that's kind of how I felt through the whole thing it's like I want to watch Empire Strikes Back now possibly instead of this <laughs> but obviously I finished it because yeah it defeats the whole object of doing this if I cheat you watched Empire quite recently, didn't you? Pretty recently, yeah. Like a, a few months ago, so not like super recently. Just through these few months of social distancing, time has just been behaving so weirdly in my mind. I can't believe that's yeah. a few months ago. I remember reading your tweets and thinking that was quite recent. <laughs> yeah. And just to give people some more context for the background to this novelization in particular... Um, we have some helpful background from a great book called Star Wars and the History of Transmedia Storytelling, which I would really recommend to an anyone interested in this sort of stuff. And that book says, The novelization of The Empire Strikes Back was written by Donald F. Glutt, a friend of George Lucas's at film school, and originally the first to be asked to write a New Hope's novelization. But Glutt had refused because the pay was low, there were no royalties, in 20th Century Fox wanted Lucas's name on the cover. The novelization of The Empire Strikes Back was released a week in advance of the film and sold 3 million copies. Glut's novelization experience was rather less positive than Foster's, as Lucasfilm's policy of secrecy and control around the production of the sequel hindered his writing. 
Some people could look at the scripts, but not see the artwork. Some people could see the artwork, but not the scripts. They literally locked me inside a trailer with all the Macquarie paintings. He made sketches in a notebook and remembered showing an employee one sketch when he came out. Is this Yoda? Glut asked. The employee threw his hands over his eyes. Don't tell me. I don't want to know. Okay, reading this <laughs> makes things make a lot more sense. Yep. Uh, and also for the, the first novelization as well, because I didn't know that it was 20th Century Fox that stipulated that they had to have Lucas's name on the cover. So um, yeah. that makes more sense. Um, but yeah, it, it it shows in in the novelization because things are described clearly to the best of the writer's ability. But if he doesn't actually see what Yoda actually looks like in the movie, he just sees a piece of concept art that turned out to be outdated and had evolved quite a lot since then. Uh, it just takes you out of it a bit when you're reading it. You're like, oh, I know what he's talking about because I've seen that piece of concept art, but that's not what Yoda looks like. Yeah. No, and it definitely made me feel a lot more empathy for the guy, I must say, because certain times I was reading it and I was like, God, this is so lacklustre. But then when you realise that he was working with those kinds of restrictions, you're like, well, really, it wasn't his fault if he wasn't given that information that he needed to work with. And unfortunately, I think this is a trend that has continued and probably only even gotten worse for the writers of the novelisations. It's actually, I, I I do know that there was a lot of secrecy around the Empire because for obvious reasons, they didn't want people to be spoiled on the father reveal. But um, yeah, it's it's kind of crazy that they went from A New Hope being so open and the novelization being released months before the movie and then this. Um, there must have been quite a change. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I also dug out some interviews with um, Donald and yeah like he has some interesting comments he's a very different type of person from alan like my dear dear alan who (laughs) i don't know why i'm so fond of him it's completely illogical but i i just have a soft spot for him not the sexism just like the general mystique of alan dean foster i suppose (laughs) um but yeah like just to give people a feel for donald and who we're dealing with here could you read out the excerpt i've posted from the lightsaber interview Kirsty. What is it like to be part of the Star Wars phenomenon? It was kind of cool when the Star Wars phenomenon was at its hottest, but also a bit of a downer. A lot of people rolled out the red carpet to me, so to speak, because Star Wars was considered by some to be something really important. <laughs> people would try to impress me, kiss up by telling me how many times they'd seen Star Wars or The Empire Strikes Back. They still do, but not being a fan of the franchise, I really didn't and still don't care how many times they saw those films. <laughs> okay, this is even funnier now knowing that he was a friend of George's. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> uh, it's kind of refreshing. You know, I've seen a lot of fans. It reminds me of the stuff around Tony Gilroy for Rogue One. And now yes. he's working on um, the spin off for Disney+. Plus that people kind of get upset when he says he doesn't care that much about Star Wars, but I kind of like it. I think it's funny. (laughs) Yeah, I I think how much you like Star Wars has no bearing on how good a job you can do at writing about Star Wars. Um, Because, yeah, we've seen people who aren't particularly invested do amazing work with the property. And 
I'd much rather have someone who is a bit indifferent to Star Wars but writes an amazing story or directs an amazing movie rather than a super fan who makes something that's really slavish and just filled with all these like unbearably nerdy details. So like, I am an unbearable nerd, but you know what I mean. <laughs> um, <laughs> well, because I had a quick look at this guy's um, Goodreads author profile after I'd finished the book and put it on there and he his career has been prolific he's written about so many different things and this is the only star wars thing he ever did so from his perspective it probably is quite frustrating to have that be like the thing that he's primarily known for just because star wars itself is so big and yet that's never been his focus yeah no it is a really interesting like situation to be in isn't it i guess star wars is just so all-encompassing like i remember reading stories about from the time of the original film's release and how, like, I don't know, a guy who was, like, handled the boom mic for, like, the second unit and people would go up to him and ask for his autograph purely because he was attached to Star Wars and people were just baffled by it, you know, because mm. it's like, it's just a movie. Um, but, yeah, obviously Star Wars has gone so far beyond that now that it's something entirely different. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I just thought it was so interesting that Donald was coming at it from this perspective Whereas Alan Dean Foster literally wrote fan fiction for how Star Wars Episode Nine should go, which I, I think both are like respectable, good positions to have in their own right. I just find it fascinating that they're so diametrically opposed. Yeah, I think that makes sense because you see that even now. Like I said, Tony Gilroy versus a lot of the, I mean, because they announced a lot of the the writers that are attached to that new empire project and people are over the moon to be involved in star wars they say that it's their dream to have written for star wars since they were a kid so people come at it from very different perspectives and like you say it should have no bearing on the quality of their work exactly in a way as you say it's quite refreshing so yeah i can appreciate that um cool and then there's just one other part of um the lightsaber interview that'd be great if we could read out could you read out the next part kirsty Yeah, they say, Novels and movies are two very different things, and with Empire cutting it so fine and making it to the screen by May 19th, 1980, you must have had the book finished before Kirshner finished his film. And then Donald says, I ran into Irv Kirshner at a USC event a couple years ago and told him that, as far as I was concerned, there are two versions of The Empire Strikes Back. When he gave me a puzzled expression, I replied that there was the movie version that he directed, but there was also the version I saw in my head as I was writing the novel, which was completed before I saw the movie. When I saw the movie for the first time, and the first scene came down, I remember sinking down into my seat and saying with much concern, it's different. The version in my mind was paced differently. The sets and characters looked different, and I didn't tell him this. I thought Billy Dee Williams and Harrison Ford gave better performances. (laughs) That's probably the same experience for anyone reading a novelization before seeing the actual movie. Every reader has his or own other version of the movie in their imaginations. Hmm. That may be a topic to ponder and discuss someday, which also brings up the question of why people read novelizations. If you read the book first, it can spoil the surprises in the movie, and if you read it after seeing the movie, you already know what's going to happen in the book. A true philosopher. This is really interesting because as I was reading it, I was thinking, yeah, this is exactly like the movie. Yeah. So that is actually very fascinating because (laughs) as he is describing rooms and corridors that they're running down and half and cloud city and everything it kind of just i because i had the movie so solidly in my mind i'm just kind of tracing that over his words yeah but from his perspective it was like whoa this is very different from what i was imagining yeah like i noticed it mainly in stuff like 
and it's almost weird it's just like intangible you know it's very small choices and how he describes how Han is saying a line or something like that you know so it's not like radically different from the film but like the tenor of Han's personality and his interactions with the other characters that definitely vibed differently to me in the novelization but again like in this subtle way that I'd find difficult to pick out a quote and say oh see see this captures it so yeah like yeah. I haven't really found evidence so to speak of that but I, I know exactly what he's talking about so that's why I thought it was quite an interesting quote to include there were certain ways again like you I can't pinpoint something exactly but the way that Han is described sometimes I can feel like he feels more like uh, the evolution of a new hope Han mm. which makes sense because he's like he's going based on the Han Solo that he knows from the first movie I'm assuming that Donald watched the original Star Wars after he before he wrote this. Yes, he um, did. But Han is like really quite aggressive mm. in Empire and angry and and I love him, but he's he feels quite different from how he feels in A New Hope, where he has that like laid back cockiness thing going on. Mm. What do you think? Yeah, no, I absolutely felt that, and I think I might have this quote later on in the um, notes, but um. Donald said something that captures exactly what you're saying in that because he was so restricted and had so little to work with from Empire Strikes Back and because the story was changing so much he did have to rely heavily on the performances in the original Star Wars okay so that explains why there's that alignment there hmm yeah because his Lando is quite cold yeah but um, obviously he didn't have anything to go on. He didn't have a performance from Billy Dee Williams. He does accurately describe him as a handsome man. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and he, he describes his outfits pretty well. But um, but yeah, a lot of Lando's expressions are described as quite cold. And I don't mm. get that impression from Lando and Empire. Yeah. And there's moments that in the novelization almost seemed sinister um from Lando like there was at one point like a very faint suggestion that he actively wanted like Leia to be kept behind like almost like not out of altruistic purposes right um and that was very subtle it wasn't like a big deal or anything but that obviously isn't what comes from the movie at all and mm-hmm. it's the sort of thing I can understand why he might play up that angle as the novelization writer but yeah it's just one of those things that just feels slightly off when you're reading Okay. Um, yeah, so in terms of differences, um, we have a different interview with Donald from Blazing Minds, which draws attention to one of my favourite <laughs> differences between the novel and the film. Um, and I'll read that out. Blazing Minds. The novelization has some differences to the original film, such as Yoda's skin and Darth Vader's lightsaber, which are blue. What were the reasons for these and other changes which you made? The lightsaber thing was just a mistake I made that no one caught. (laughs) Not being a Star Wars fan myself, I didn't remember. As to other changes, the script kept changing, and what was filmed did not necessarily match the pre-production artwork I saw. They were still making script changes after the novel went to press. (laughs) This reminds me so much of Rise of Skywalker, Kirsty. I love this, though, because this is the kind of thing that if someone made these pretty big mistakes... Imagine, like, Darth Vader with a blue lightsaber... (laughs) <laughs> no one caught it. If someone did that today, you'd get like a million angry YouTube videos about it. Oh my and god. And how Disney Star Wars is going down the toilet. Yeah. 
like it was that sort of awareness that really killed me when I was reading that interview. So it's like, God, what an innocent time <laughs> compared to what we find ourselves in now. Because, yeah, ultimately it is just a silly superficial difference. You know, it's just a colour. But obviously in the context of Star Wars, red versus blue lightsaber, that's like good versus evil. You know, it's like diametric opposition. So it's hugely important in that context. But yeah, for this guy where he's just not super invested, I'm like, well, well the other saber's blue. Why not this one? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's another reason to appreciate Donald in his own way with his own idiosyncrasies. <laughs> and yeah, the Yoda skin thing is interesting because he's also described as having the long hair with the middle parting, mm, um, yes. which is a thing from older um, concept art. Yoda has much more hair and it's straight and flat and hanging down. It's interesting that they didn't fix those things for him yes. because George must have read it and thought, oh no, that's not... That's not the final Yoda that we decided to go with. But yeah, they, they just left it. I guess it's a reason to be grateful to the story group. To reason to be glad they exist now that well, but none of it matters. That's the thing. Like it yeah. did take me out of it a bit and then I was like, Oh, that's that's about that concept art, I recognise it. But at the same time, as I was reading it, obviously I wasn't like immersed. I was very aware of the fact that I was reading a different version of the film that we have. Exactly. So. It was most entertaining because it made me go and look up the Yoda concept art and I found one where he looks exactly like Papa Smurf. <laughs> He's which got the made me very happy. Yes. Garden gnome. <laughs> yeah, we'll have to tweet that out just so people have the visual because it's quite special. Oh, it's amazing how different the whole film would have felt if it was exactly the same but you just had Papa Smurf Yoda instead of ordinary Yoda. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the thing, at the time Yoda was just a new character but now he's like this iconic little green man and we have baby Yoda as well. <laughs> and of course baby he's Smurf. green. Of course he's green but he wasn't <laughs> always. But character wise Yoda is pretty much as he is, right? Yeah. I mean I didn't notice anything super different. Yeah, no, there's nothing radically different there. Yeah, in terms of the world building, um, I would say there is much less going on than there was in the Star Wars novel. Yeah, as I started reading it, I was like, wait a minute, there's not even like a prologue like in lieu of the crawl. There was just nothing. It was like straight into the first scene. <laughs> yep, exactly. It's like, well, guess some time has passed. Luke Shaw is a young <laughs> warrior now. <laughs> yeah. So you were straight into half. Yeah. No, like there's no like digressions and there's no time wasted on such things as scene setting or context, which is fine. It just plunges you straight in and it's just a choice. Um, but yeah, like literally the only thing that stood out to me is being interested in mythology that's present in the novelization and not present explicitly in the film is there's a little part about Boba Fett's armor. Yeah. Um, and that quote is quite interesting. Could you read it out, Kirsty? It's just a brief one. Yeah, it says he was dressed in a weapon-covered, armoured spacesuit, the kind worn by a group of evil warriors defeated by the Jedi Knights during the Clone Wars. So that's the first reference to Mandalorian culture that we have in Star Wars canon. Yeah. And it's quite amazing to think that from tiny acorns to mighty oaks grow, because, yeah, that line in itself, it would not lead you to expect what we now have with the Mandalorian culture, which is obviously very intricate and carefully realised and has all these complexities and stuff. And mm -hmm. 
Yeah, it just makes me wonder where he actually got that from. I presume it must have come from George because obviously that <laughs> didn't come to pass. So. <laughs> I don't think George Lucas was looking through Donald's novelization and be like, oh, I like that idea. Let's take it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'd like to know that story. But based on his other comments, I really doubt Donald remembers. So Yeah, it is interesting that the stuff that's not present in the movie must have, like you say, either come from George... And like he had the eventual intent to tell these stories at a deeper level, mm. or yeah, the only other option is that the novelization writers themselves make up the stuff, and George takes it and runs with it. I'm sure there are people out there who know the direct history of how these things evolved. We don't, so. But uh, yeah, just like the first one where there was the stuff that lined up so well with the prequels. I'm like, wow, that's not in the movie yet. It's what we know. Is, is told in future stories yeah it's quite fascinating like and it feels like oddly sort of precious in the context of these novels which again as we've discussed are quite bare bones they're not novelizations in the way we know them now whereas like now we get novelizations and they're full of like new scenes and like dream sequences and like all this like extra stuff that's designed to get you to pay up because yeah, you can own the movie on Blu-ray or whatever in a couple of months. You don't need a novelization to relive the experience. Um, and yeah, because these are so bare bones, when there's anything extra like that, it grabs your attention. Hmm. So now we're going to move on to the characters. Um, <laughs> so with Luke, I think when we were talking about the previous one, I was like, yeah, he's just kind of bland. And that continues. <laughs> And it's not Luke's fault, and I, I don't even think it's particularly Donald's fault, because he is just doing a very like basic, this is the story retelling, which is fine. Um, but honestly, Kirsty, it just did my head in the number of times that Luke is called Young Warrior in the script. Yeah. Just, no. <laughs> it's always kind of annoying when you can pick up on an author's crutch word, and then you just see it over and over again. Yeah, exactly. Is I just say Luke. Just say Luke. <laughs> Use he, use a pronoun, anything. Just not Young Warrior. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so that drove me crazy. Um, And I also wanted to, um, like, revisit what's quite possibly the most famous scene in the whole of Star Wars, which is the I am your father revelation, specifically Luke's reaction to it. Because in the novelization, I find it hilarious. Um, Could you read out what I've highlighted, please, Kirsty? Stunned, Luke stared of disbelief at the black-clad warrior and then pulled away at this revelation. The two warriors stood staring at one another, father and son. No, no, that's not true, Luke said, refusing to believe what he had just heard. That's impossible. Search your feelings, Vader said, sounding like an evil version of Yoda. You know it to be true. (laughs) Sorry, I just... I can't get over evil version of Yoda. I love it. Sorry, please continue. Well, because <laughs> it's like, do you mean his speech pattern? <laughs> <laughs> oh, poor Donald. Frank Oz voice. Search your feelings. I mean, I guess it makes sense because he's gone through all of the training with Yoda, like giving the Jedi platitudes and everything. And he does tell Luke over and over to search your feelings and think about your friends and you know, do you want to give up everything that they've worked so hard for and all this? But yeah, it does sound pretty ridiculous. <laughs> um, yeah, I think it would be really hard. And 
and we know at this point that Donald hadn't even watched the movie as he wrote the novelization that 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 performance there I think I love it um when Mark Hamill is reacting to the news but it's very very intense right yeah I just think it would be really hard to to put that into words so this is very like oh he just can't believe it (laughs) (laughs) oh my god and yeah like I feel like this sort of passage it just underlines like a style problem that I have with this whole novel where it's written like in this very passive way um it's it's like active voice is just not really a thing in this novelization and it's a choice it's a choice but it's Mm. just one that made it a bit less engaging to me um and then we have a neat little summary of luke's growth that comes on the very final page of the book they needed no words in this moment luke knew that leia's mind and heart were with han no matter where he was or what his fate might be as to his own destiny, he was now more uncertain about himself than he had ever been. Even before this simple farm boy on a distant world first learned of the intangible something called the Force, he only knew he had to return to Yoda and finish his training before he set off to rescue Han. So, yep, sure is all true. <laughs> I... I didn't mind this part. Like, I liked that he draws attention to the fact that there's a new maturity in his voice as he's yeah. Luke saying goodbye to Lando and Chewie. And it, it draws attention to the fact that this is a coming of age story. And as he's just received this shocking news about his father, it kind of calls into question all of these things and kind of. It, it really evolves Luke's character. Because if you think about jumping ahead to Return of the Jedi, obviously Donald Glitt would have had no sense of where. Luke was going in Return of the Jedi, but when we meet him again in the opening of that movie, he's really quite different. Yes. So you get the sense that this this revelation has really changed things for Luke, and he's not the the whiny little boy complaining about not being able to go to Tachi Station anymore. Yeah. No, that's a really good point. Very true. I think I just I think I got along with the novelization a bit more than you. I I don't like actively love it or anything, but. You seem to have like strongly disliked it, whereas I'm just like, well, it's fine. It, it's yeah. the movie. <laughs> I think you're just more forgiving than I am. Like when it I comes just don't to this, expect very much to be honest. I know that sounds bad, but yeah, I, and I think it's probably also just because I'm more fond of Alan Dean Foster than I should be. <laughs> I'm like, I just want Alan back. Definitely appreciated more the way that Leia was described in this one. Yeah. Although, actually, coming back to that. Maybe you've got this in the notes somewhere, but there's this part towards the beginning on Hoff where her and Han are talking, and there are oh, there I are have lines. that, Kirsty. We're getting there. Don't okay. worry. Yeah, yeah that's there's, coming. There's one or two moments where I'm like, oh, yeah. how I feel about that. Yeah, no, like that made me. I, I think to be fair, that got me off on a bad foot with it because right. that happens in like the first chapter, and that sort of like made me bristle and yeah like after that i was sort of like set in my ways in terms of how i was feeling about it even though it definitely got much better in terms of how it described the relationship and the character so yeah yeah um with han um i feel like we've already covered that in terms of those really subtle differences um but i just wanted quickly to bring up that like um the quote i mentioned earlier from styles and history of transmedia storytelling um could you read out what i've highlighted kirsty It's also clear that Glut's interpretation of the Han Solo character is different from Harrison Ford's portrayal. 
Since he did not have access to any film footage, Gluck was worried that the book would be a lot different than the movie and would offend a lot of readers. All I had to go by, as far as the mood and the visual of style, was the first film. So I tried to apply what I remembered from the first film to the novel of the second film. Yeah, which I think calls attention to some really interesting factors, which is also the fact that it's not like he could just pop on his like copy of A New Hope and re-familiarise himself with how things went in that movie and what the performances were like because mm. people didn't have home VHS in 1979 like I think some people did in very rare situations but it wasn't widespread so people weren't just able to revisit the movie and they were going off like memories that were a few years old so I think it's not at all surprising that it feels a bit off yeah. And I wonder if he was even given information from George as to how many years had passed and yeah. where where Han would be in his headspace. Because things are quite different. Like in A New Hope, he's very much detached and he's out for himself. And this is his arc, right? By the time we get to Empire, he's not officially part of the rebellion, but he pretty much is. He's there, he's giving yeah. underlings orders, and he's very invested in Luke and Leia's well-being. And clearly at the beginning of the movie and the novel, he has feelings for Leia, but doesn't quite know what to do with them or how to express them. Yes. And that that's so different. You know, I know it's hinted at in A New Hope, but really things were very open at that point and it could have easily gone the way of Luke and Leia being the couple. Because mm, we yeah. know from having Splinter of the Mind's Eye that they didn't even know that Han was going to be in the sequel. Yeah, that was interesting. And I did appreciate that it very firmly committed in the novel to that like Leia and Han relationship. And obviously the film does as well. But I was afraid of there being like more love triangle stuff. You know, so even the film proper plays into that a bit with how they frame that like first kiss where Leia kisses Luke when he's in the medical bay. And luckily not much was made of that in the novelization. And I was like, oh, thank God. <laughs> So you didn't want to go through that. Yeah, it's it's pretty clear when Leia's doing that, at least in the novelization, that it's not about her having conflicted feelings for Han and Luke. It's that it's born out of the reactions that she's had with Han and she's like, well, I'll show him. Yes, exactly, which I appreciated. <laughs> which, you know, poor Luke, but... <laughs> he's, he's quite clearly an afterthought for Leia. There's yeah. a few times where she's like, oh, I'm thinking about Han. <laughs> I shouldn't be. <laughs> Yeah, and I did appreciate that with like the paragraph about Luke's growth at the end of the book. How they're like, yeah, Luke completely knows and accepts that like Leia's with Han now, basically, and that's cool and that's resolved. I was like, wow, that must have hurt a lot of Luke Leia shippers back in 1980. Yeah, because it's not in the in the novelization, but in the movie, of course, when Luke is rescued from Cloud City and he's kind of recovering there, Leia does quickly kiss him, yes. right? That's not in the novelization at all. And as you say, once they're looking out of the viewport together and he has his arms around her, he's he's aware that she loves Han and is worried about him. And he's like, right, we're going to go off and find him. Yeah. So it's it's not a case of the love triangle still being a thing at that point. So, yeah, yeah we're not fans of love triangles. And <laughs> I appreciate that. that Especially it's like, not yeah, incestuous ones, Kirsty. Well, at this point, it's not. Yes, no, it's true. Especially not retroactively incestuous ones. Cause... Right, exactly. But at this point, it's like, in the movie, I think there is more of the love triangle element. Whereas yeah. in the novelization, I don't know 
if that just kind of evolved over time as they were making the movie and George maybe didn't communicate that with Donald or Donald just intentionally glossed over it and focused on the central romance of Han and Leia but for whatever reason I appreciate it you know yeah no I appreciate it too um what did you make of Leia in the novel how did that play to you and bearing in mind that we're gonna focus more on the Han and Leia relationship in the next part I thought she was pretty much the layer that I know. Yeah. At least, you know, the layer that we get in Empire. I thought it was pretty spot on. And um, yeah, I just appreciated those little moments where <laughs> it says that she she finds it most disturbing to realise that she's worried more about Han <laughs> while Han and Luke are missing out on half. Because <laughs> she feels like she should be worried about them both equally, but she's actually thinking about Han. <laughs> that did remind me a lot of like peak Raylo stuff where Ray is like, oh shit, I care about Kylo Ren. Fuck. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, like, oh, there, there were very small details added that I enjoyed. Like um, when she's thinking about them both, uh, wor- worried that they're not going to make it back once the hangar, do- hangar doors are closing and 3PO's there freaking out and everything. She says a silent old Iranian prayer that they're still alive. I, I like those little added internal details about Leia's culture and life. Yeah. No, it's really nice. And it hints at like a richer inner life for her. That, yeah, makes you curious. Yeah. And, and just to say it again, I just appreciate that there are fewer descriptions of Leia's appearance. Yeah. You know, I, I get it. Carrie Fisher's <laughs> a very beautiful, lovely young woman, but you don't need to say it every single time Leia walks into a scene. Yeah. <laughs> I, that was very much like Alan Dean Foster's young warrior thing it was about beautiful young woman um, and yeah you're right it was good that that was sort of eliminated here mm-hmm. um, yeah and then just finally on the character front I just briefly wanted to talk about Vader so I found the interaction between him and the Emperor kind of curious and a bit perplexing in how it was described um, so we have this part from that encounter and again not radically different from the film it's just I was a little bit ah. so the son of Skywalker you must destroy him or he will be our undoing Skywalker the fault was impossible how could the Emperor be concerned with this insignificant youth he's not a Jedi Vader reasoned he's just a boy Obi-Wan could not have taught him so much that and Again, I, this is probably me having too high expectations, but I think I was just a bit like surprised that there doesn't seem to be any awareness at all of the fact that that's your son, dude. <laughs> you know, that's the problem I think of writing a novelization like this, where the mm. reveal is later on. Yes. So you can't actually betray any of that right now, and it's not in the movie, right? We project that onto Vader as we go back watching it now, knowing that he's learning in that moment that Luke is his son. Yes. But he can't really give us anything right now because this isn't where the reveal is. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, no, you're right. And it's just a limitation that the author had to work with. And yeah, I think it's unsatisfying when you come to it with the knowledge. But you're right that it's unfair to expect him to have done much more with that because yeah you can't give that twist away at that point if you're working with the assumption that this might well be the first time people are experiencing the story yeah i think the the part where he says the thought was impossible that's like a 
a real element of shock and surprise on Vader's half. But then is saying, oh, but calling him insignificant, that doesn't really line up with the idea that he would be realising that this was his son. So, yeah, it's a bit of a mixed bag. Yeah. Um, But then, I don't know, in the movie, I think, when he's talking about him being just a boy, I do think that, like, calling him a boy rather than the way that Vader has treated Luke before is, like, it's a bit more humanising and connected. Yeah. One part I do appreciate about this interaction is that Vader is described as clearly, like, terrified of the Emperor. More so than, again, you get necessarily in the movie itself. Yeah. Um, It says, As he waited, his Imperial Star Destroyer floated through a vast ocean of stars. No one on his ship would have dared disturb Darth Vader in his private cubicle, but if they had, they might have detected a slight trembling in that black-cloaked frame. And there might even have been a hint of terror to be seen upon his visage had anyone been able to see through his concealing black breath mask. So Vader is scared of the Emperor, which might have been a surprise to people reading this. Yeah, no, it's true. And you don't really get that vulnerability in the film itself. So that's like added value for the novelization. Yeah, you don't get it in the film itself, but at the same time, the more you go back to Empire, like you do kind of project it onto Vader in these moments, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah, and then to round it off, let's look at what we're especially keen on, which is the treatment of romance in this book. So obviously The Empire Strikes Back is in large part a love story, and that's one of the most famous and well-done threads for the whole thing. Um, yeah, and I would say that this is one of the aspects of the novelization where it's pretty well done. Obviously, nothing can compare to seeing Harrison Ford and Carrie Fisher on screen and sharing that chemistry. Um, but there are some really genuinely nice tender moments between them in here, which I really appreciated. How did you find the relationship in the novel, Kirsty? It was the part that I was most looking forward to reading about because it's one of my favorite aspects of Empire. Um, and, and I did enjoy it. Um, obviously, as we hinted at earlier, there's elements earlier on that are a bit yikes, but they're also, they are kind of present in the movie itself, mm. right? Like there is this weird dated aspect to Han and Leia's dynamic and how he talks to her at first. And it, it it's obviously there not to justify it. He's being a bit of a dick, but he doesn't know how to process and accept his feelings for her because, of course, the Han that we meet in The New Hope prides himself on the fact that he doesn't rely on any other people and he doesn't get attached. And then when we meet him in Empire, he's attached to Luke and Leia and he's romantically interested in Leia and believes that she's interested in him too but doesn't know how to move forward with that. So it it translates into him acting in some not great ways. Um, and there's just extra elements of that in the novelization. And I don't know if they were included originally as dialogue in the movie that was then cut, but um, yeah, it's just kind of interesting to see that. Yeah, no, I agree. There was more stuff between them on Hoff, for example, where it was quite combative. And I'd need to see it again, whether there's any of like the actively like borderline sexist stuff that you find in the novelization. Um, but... Yeah, like I think it is often forgotten that in the film that a lot of those interactions, I, they wouldn't be written in the same way if they were done today. 
I fall. That's pretty safe to say. It is effective and you buy the evolution of the romance between them and I think that's just as true for the novelization as it is for the film. So that is a credit to Donald so I need to stop ripping into him basically because he he did one of the most important things right I think. I mean how people feel about the depiction of romantic relationships is really personal and I know there are a lot of fans that well, there are a lot of fans in, you know, present day Star Wars fandom that really don't like the depiction of Rey and Kylo's romantic relationship, which is fair enough. There are a lot of people who don't like the depiction of Anakin and Padme's, which is also fair. And there are lots of fans who don't really like the way that Han and Leia's relationship is depicted. So I'm not one of them. I enjoy all of these romantic relationships for what they are, but I also see what people are getting at when they have their complaints. Yeah. No, exactly. And I think it's important to be like empathetic to those different angles and perspectives on it. Just in terms of my favourite moments from how the relationship's described, I just wanted to read out a description of Leia from when she first has that wardrobe change on Bespin. Um, because I, I kind of like this as a counterpoint to the sort of descriptions of Leia you get in Alan Dean Foster's characterization of her. Yeah, like here, it's still obviously from the perspective of a male character. It just feels much more like tender and romantic, so I appreciated it. It is a bit clunky and corny, but yeah, it's Star Wars, so that's what you expect. Mm. A door yeah. behind him opened, and he turned to see Princess Leia standing in the entranceway to her apartment. She was stunning. Dressed in red, with a cloud-white cloak flowing to the floor, Leia looked more beautiful than Han had ever seen her. Her long, dark hair was tied with ribbons, and it softly framed her oval face. And she was looking at him, smiling at his astounded expression. And yeah, I just think that's lovely and soft, and I like it. How about you, Kirsty? Yeah, there's a surprising amount of emotional depth in certain places. Like I, I do think that Leia looks amazing in that outfit. So I, I agree with him when she makes her entrance. Like, that's a fair point to comment. Um, there's a bit on the Falcon where, you know, there's that whole bit with like, oh, I'm not, it's not quite enough to get me excited. Um, Han's emotions towards Leia surprise himself. He calls her beautiful and she gets all shy and blushing. Um, and then Han gets angry at himself for messing things up by saying that she's excited. Like, it acknowledges that he he's aware that he's ruined the moment. And I like the way that's all described, because it feels true to the movie. But that's a moment that could have been misinterpreted by the author. So I'm actually quite surprised, because I feel like it's the kind of thing where a novelization author could have just kind of glossed over all of this stuff. But these are the moments where he's actually trying to add emotional depth. So I think Han and Leia, for that reason, they're probably the best characterized characters of the novelization. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and I feel like, yeah, it shows that Donald isn't particularly invested in or interested in Star Wars and the world of Star Wars. And I think when you are aware of that, it makes more sense that the stuff he could really latch onto and could do the best job with was the stuff that actually felt like it had some sort of authentic human emotion to it, which in Empire is in large part that Han and Leia love story because yeah that's the sort of relationship you can find throughout all of cinema it's not just limited to sci-fi and fantasy tropes again this is kind of like coming back to the fact that yes we get the big father-son reveal in Empire but there's not a ton of emotional connection between 
Vader and Luke at that point. They're still strangers, almost, like just enemies. And then Luke has this bombshell dropped on him and he leaves Cloud City and has to process it. But it's not really until Return of the Jedi that we get that strong emotional relationship between those two characters. So really, Han and Leia are the emotional center of this movie. And I feel like that is what's supported here. Um, did you want to talk about the bit where Han says that Leia's been giving orders too long and she's forgotten how to be a woman? <sighs> yeah, we probably should. <laughs> it's awful. Because it's one of their earliest interactions. They're on half and he's still intent on leaving. Um, but he's also trying to get her to admit her feelings for him, right? And that's a line that's there. Is it is it a line as in something that he says to her, or is it him thinking of it? Let me check. I'll but essentially, up. it's it's that Han thinks that Leia's been giving orders too long because she has this position of authority in the Rebel Alliance now, and that means that she's forgotten how to be a woman, and he needs to remind her uh, how to be a woman by having this romantic relationship with her. <laughs> <sighs> Which... Uh, yeah, there's a lot of things wrong with that, but it it didn't surprise me because that's kind of what I expect from the older novelizations, unfortunately. What surprised me was that it was really the only instance of that, whereas in Alan Dean Foster's version, I think we would have had a we would have had that throughout Hannah Leia's dynamic. Yeah. No, that's very true. And um I hate to say but it was in dialogue. So <laughs> <Can> you- <laughs> In the novelization, he says these words to her. He says, Believe me, you could use a good kiss. You've been so busy giving orders, you've forgotten how to be a woman. If you'd have let go for a moment, I could have helped you. But it's too late now, sweetheart. Your big opportunity (laughs) is flying out of here. So, like, this exchange in itself is responsible for a lot of my negative feelings about Donald, I hate to say. And you're right in that it's not fair because the rest of it is much better. This is absolutely the nadir in terms of that sort of stuff. But yeah, it's a pretty low nadir. I guess it depends. I would love to find Donald and ask him to clarify uh, whether it's like a depiction of Han being in the right or if the idea is that Han is being the jackass there, like, if, if, is that the idea? You know, and, and his perception has to be challenged. And actually, it is okay for Leia to be giving orders, and that doesn't diminish her femininity at all. I feel like that sort of aspect of it is why, like, you always feel the absence of the female perspective in this. Because by default, the perspective that you're dealing with is Han's. And you will get like a sense for how Leia feels about things. But usually it's only in like the briefest way. And it's only information that you're given as flavour to inform what Han says next, basically. So Leia looked outraged or something. And then Han will like come out with something else. Um, And... Yeah, like I think that's why I feel a little bit reluctant to see it as any sort of criticism of that position because for the most part it's firmly on hand side. Um, mm. It's hard to know for sure because there's a bit later on where they're having more of their banter on the Falcon and Han reflects on the fact that he's enjoying the fact that Leia and him both have that sarcastic sense of humour. Mm. So it is possible that his his perception of her evolves and he's like actually she's just as witty and smart as me and i really like that about her but 
I don't know. It's how it you kind of have to read into things a lot to get the reading that you want. <laughs> yeah. I like I hate to say that I don't have it to hand, but there is actually a nice line late on in the novel where it's something about how like Leia's picked up a new skill or like is doing something daring with the Falcon. Yeah, I think it's when she gets Lando to turn the Falcon around and they make the point that oh that's a lot like her being like Han. And I, I thought that was quite a nice moment. So it didn't strike me as patronising or like, oh, you need to be manly. But it was more like learning from each other and like picking things up and stuff, which I quite yeah. appreciated. And there is a part when they're on Cloud City where... Uh, we said earlier, actually, now I'm thinking about it, this isn't quite true. We were talking about how Donald doesn't play in too much to the love triangle aspect, but he does in Han's eyes, which I think is is probably accurate to the movies themselves because of course in Return of the Jedi Han still feels a bit threatened by Luke in that sense that he's like <laughs> oh well you would tell Luke wouldn't you um, when ha- when Leia is talking about Luke in the apartment on Cloud City um, Han gets jealous and he's like how hard did he have to play at this game of hard to get it was her game and her times but he had chosen to play she was too lovely to resist so it's like this idea of Han is aware that they're playing this game or at least he he thinks he's being hard to get which is kind of ridiculous because it's like so obvious that Han has feelings for Leia at this point <laughs> it's obvious from the beginning but he thinks he's being subtle about it but just just the fact that Leia's mentioning Luke and worrying about him is is a problem which is kind of weird because they all care about Luke including Han who risked his life to save him on half <laughs> I'm allowed to care about Luke, but you're not. <laughs> because that threatens me. <laughs> yeah, so one other element I wanted to bring up that is not related to Luke and Leia um, is Han and Lando talking about the Falcon when they get to Cloud City. And obviously they, they need to fix the hyperdrive. And Lando says, I'll have my people get to work on it right away. I hate the thought of the Millennium Falcon without her heart. And that just kind of reminded me of L3 in Solo. So I yeah. like that. That is really nice, especially when that obviously was not present in Donald's mind at all um, when this was being written. So, yeah, it's one of those nice moments of harmonisation across time, like even when it's not intended, because, yeah, now reading it with the knowledge of the history between Lando and the ship, it adds almost a certain poignancy to it, which is quite impressive for like such a brief throwaway line. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, like I'm glad we had this discussion, Kirsty. Like I know I'm a bit more negative about it than you are, but it's nice to talk to someone who felt more positively about it because it helps me see the positives in it too. And obviously not to the extent that I've completely altered my opinion of it, but to the extent that I can reflect on it a bit more and be like, yeah, there is merit in this to some extent. So thank you. This might sound bad, but it's just kind of where I've been at in my headspace that I'm sure lots of people can relate as we were saying at the beginning our focus in the last few weeks has not been on Star Wars at all and I have read this novelization very quickly over the last two evenings and I just felt like I had to get through it so that we could have this discussion and I had very low expectations as I was reading it I was like yep that's pretty much what's in the movie and there are these little changes as we've discussed but it's not to the extent that I would like recommend this to anyone not yeah. even someone who loves the movie. I wouldn't be like, well, you've got to read the novelization then because it, it doesn't <laughs> add enough to justify that. 
you know you, you can just watch the movie yeah so so we're doing this project and we're going to keep going but it's it's going to be interesting because i feel like our perception and understanding of the purpose of novelizations is going to change as we get through the trilogies because the original trilogy i think they were written for very different reasons and um i've only read the revenge of the sith novelization so far from the prequels so i don't know about the quality of the other two but in terms of that one it adds so much more to your understanding of the story that i feel like we're going to have more interesting discussions in the future but we have to start with the originals right i mean yeah that makes exactly. sense we're nerds we're completists so we have to tick them all off otherwise what's the point so uh, i'd be surprised if based on this discussion anyone is like wow i've got to go and read i've got to go and read the empire strikes back novelization now <laughs> so <laughs> this is probably a waste of time no one's gonna be like wow yeah they really <laughs> persuaded me to pick up that book um <laughs> maybe it's a way for someone to pass an hour or two i don't know yeah no exactly it's diverting background noise i hope um but yeah like i very much agree with Kirsty's summary there like don't really just don't read this it's kind of my burden <laughs> like <laughs> that sounds horrible it's not, it's not bad it's just yeah. it's you know you may as well watch the movie that's what it's there for so we, and we have access to that so yeah exactly i think there's just so little that's different or unique to the novelization that yeah there's just very little reason to read this like when you have an amazing movie that you could watch instead actually now i'm thinking about it one little detail that was different that i have Mm -hmm. to mention Mm -hmm. (laughs) because this is one of my favorite moments in the movie where han and leia have their first kiss and then 3po interrupts them and leia runs away it's quite different (laughs) yes in the in the novelization chewie is watching them the whole time (laughs) like even from when they're talking and he's like rubbing her hands he's like peeking out from above the ceiling he's like fixing something somewhere else and then like just comes in and creeps on them and they don't know he's there and then 3PO doesn't appear at all Leia just chooses to leave because her feelings are so all over the place that she needs to process that and I kind of like that difference I like that it's Leia just choosing to step back and be like I need to go away and think about this you know she's not like scared away yeah she she chooses to leave and it's not because 3PO interrupts so that was an interesting distinction yeah no you're right like there are like little morsels in there so if you're like a super hardcore completist read it then well people probably have already read it if they're if they're like that but is it completist or completionist what's the word um that's a really good question i'm not sure (laughs) like that can be my homework first i'll research get back to you completionist there you go sorry oh okay interesting thank you i appreciate that yeah having a podcast makes me question so many words that i you know when you're like talking in casual conversation it's different and then when we have a podcast i'm like wait is that the word i'm second guessing myself because it's like immortalized forever i think knowing it's published online for anyone who (laughs) is so inclined to listen to and that it's going to be there for a long time that yeah like it makes you hypercritical and hyper aware of everything you're well, saying. now we know it's completionist so if, if you are a star wars completionist chances are you've already read this and we're behind the times um oh one other thing sorry now i'm remembering all of these things i'm a fake fan this i did not know until i read this novelization what atat stood for <gasps> that's very key um i think i did but like only in like the 
darkest depths of my mind. If you like asked me completely spontaneously what it stood for, like is it armored all terrain? Nope. All terrain, <laughs> armored transports. Thank you. Yeah, you which see. makes sense because that's kind of describing what they are. But I just, I never, I figured it must have stood for something, but I didn't care enough to know. But now I do. Yeah. So it's an educational experience, Kirsty. Exactly. You learn something new every day. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Cool. Let's sign off. I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Stalls Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastila Bay on Tumblr. And you can find both of us on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye! Bye!